This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Sales and Leases, a problem-based approach by Scott J. Burnham and Kristen Juris. The casebook is published by Callie E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit. Don't use the material for commercial purposes and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Contracts Lectures. This is lecture number nine. In this lecture, we'll be talking about delivery terms and title issues. So moving to delivery terms and identification of goods. UCC section 2-501 discusses the concept of identification of goods. Recall that section 2-105 defines goods as things which are movable, quote, at the time of identification to the contract for sale, end quote. It is at this point in time at which the buyer acquires certain property rights in the goods, but not necessarily title to or possession of the goods. The buyer might, for example, have an insurable interest in the goods on identification. Establishing the point in time at which identification of the goods occurs depends in part upon the type of goods which are the subject matter of the contract. For example, the subject of the sale may be a particular thing in existence at the time the contract is formed. For example, at an art auction, I walk into an artist's room and point out a particular painting I want to purchase. The item might be part of a larger stock of similar items held at some other location by the seller. For example, a store may have a canoe dangling from the ceiling as part of its sales display, and I want to buy that model of canoe. I won't actually buy the one dangling from the ceiling. The store has a stock of the canoes in its warehouse a few blocks away. The goods may not even be in existence yet. For example, I walk into a jewelry store and ask the jeweler to design and make a ring for me. The goods may be crops not yet planted or unborn animals. 
For example, a buyer may enter into an agreement in September 2015 for a farmer's 2016 barley crop, which has not yet been planted. The process of designating a particular good as the good, quote, to which the contract refers, end quote, is identification. Identification gives the buyer, quote, a special property interest and an insurable interest, end quote, in the goods, but not the full bundle of rights that goes with full ownership of the goods. And when does identification occur? UCC section 2-501-1A to C provides the framework for determining when identification occurs. These sections apply only in the absence of an agreement otherwise. The first rule, look at the agreement of the parties to determine if it specifies when identification of the goods occurs. For example, if an artist has made 50 numbered prints of a particular piece of art, the contract may specify a particular methodology for determining which of the 50 prints will be delivered to the buyer. Also, remember that usage of trade, course of dealing, and course of performance may establish some of the terms of the agreement. For example, if it is customary in the trade to provide the lowest available numbered print, then identification of the print is established by usage of trade. Absent a contractual provision otherwise, Section 2-501-1A states that in the context of a contract for the sale of goods already existing and identified, identification occurs when the contract is made. For example, at an art auction, when a buyer walks into an artist's room and points out a particular painting and offers to purchase it for $150, and the artist accepts that offer. The identification of the goods occurs when the artist accepts the offer. At that point in time, the buyer acquires certain rights in the painting, even if the buyer does not take possession of the painting immediately. In another example, a buyer walks into a drugstore, picks out a can of hairspray, and takes it to pay for it. When the clerk accepts the buyer's money, the contract is formed and identification of the goods occurs at the cash register. And what about the situation where we see a canoe dangling from the ceiling in the store? And I tell the salesman I want to buy a canoe of that model. When is the particular canoe that is the subject of the contract identified? Is it when the stalker pulls out one of the several canoes of the model in storage? Is it when the stalker loads it on top of my car? Is it when I pay the purchase price at the cash register? Note that section 2-501-1B refers to identification, quote, when goods are shipped, marked, or otherwise designated by the seller, end quote. However, Section 2-501-1B only applies to 
future goods, and thus it is not applicable to this situation, where goods are in existence. So where do we go for guidance in this example? Although this situation commonly occurs, the UCC is silent. First, look to see if the parties have explicitly agreed to a time and manner of identification. For example, the buyer may consent to allowing the store to pick out the particular canoe to be delivered. Or the store may agree to allow the buyer to go into the warehouse and select a canoe. In the absence of a specific agreement, look to usage of trade, course of dealing, and course of performance for contract terms. And when does identification occur in connection with future goods not yet in existence? For example, a buyer goes into a jewelry store and orders a custom-designed ring, and the jeweler accepts the order. Section 2-501-1B governs this situation and states that the goods are identified when they are, quote, shipped, marked, or otherwise designated by the seller as goods to which the contract refers, end quote. Does that occur when the jeweler sets aside the stones and gold she will use in making the ring? When she actually begins making the ring? When she places the materials and beginnings of the ring in a box marked with the buyer's name and order number? Or when the ring is completed and delivered to the purchaser? Note comment two, which states, quote, The general policy is to resolve all doubts in favor of identification. End quote. Under section 2-501-1C, if the contract is for the sale of, one, animals to be born within 12 months, or, two, crops to be harvested within the longer of 12 months or the next harvest, identification occurs when the young are conceived or the crops are planted. And moving to tender of delivery. Once seller agrees to sell the goods, the buyer agrees to buy, the seller has a duty to tender delivery of the goods to the buyer. In section 2-301, quote, the obligation of the seller is to transfer and deliver, end quote. You need to be able to identify when tender of delivery occurs because this event determines many other obligations, such as the obligation of the buyer to pay and when risk of loss passes. Section 2-503-1 requires that, quote, seller put and hold conforming goods at the buyer's disposition and give the buyer any notification reasonably necessary to enable him to take delivery, end quote. The manner, time, and place for tender are determined by, one, the agreement, and two, the applicable provisions of the UCC including Section 2-5031, which states that tender must be at a reasonable hour. Comment 3 notes that, quote, usage of the trade and the circumstances of the particular case, end quote, determine what is a reasonable hour. And the goods must be kept available 
for the period reasonably necessary to enable the buyer to take possession. Comment 3 notes that usage of the trade and the circumstances of the particular case determine what constitutes a reasonable period. And unless otherwise agreed, the buyer must furnish facilities reasonably suited to the receipt of the goods. The contract terms, whether oral, written, or as determined by usage of trade, course of dealing, or course of performance, should specify how delivery occurs. You need to be able to distinguish between contracts one, where either the seller or buyer agrees to be responsible for delivery, or two, where the parties agree that an independent third party or a common carrier is responsible for delivery. When the parties agree for delivery of goods through use of a common carrier, that is, an independent third party in the business of transporting goods, the UCC has specific rules determining the responsibilities of the seller, buyer, and common carrier. Another less common situation is the use of a warehouse, such as when a farmer stores his grain at a grain elevator owned by a cooperative. When dealing with a common carrier or warehouse, documents of title, such as a bill of lading, are often but not always involved. For example, when a sawmill located in Montana delivers 1,000 board feet of lumber to a railway for delivery to a hardware store located in Washington, the railway will give to the sawmill a bill of lading, acknowledging the quantity and type of lumber it is shipping. The sawmill then forwards the bill of lading to the hardware store, and the hardware store must provide the bill of lading to the rail yard to pick up the lumber, so not just anybody can take it. There are basically two types of contracts when using a common carrier. In a destination contract, the seller agrees to be responsible for delivering the goods by common carrier to the agreed-upon destination. Note that all delivery contracts, whether a destination or a shipment contract, have an ultimate destination. It is not the presence of a specific destination that makes a contract a destination contract. Instead, what makes a destination contract a destination contract is that the seller takes on the responsibility of delivering to the specific destination rather than just getting it into the hands of a common carrier at the seller's warehouse or place of business. All contracts which are not destination contracts are shipment contracts. Comment 5 to Section 2-503 notes that shipment contracts are regarded as the normal or default contract. The seller has different duties depending upon whether a shipment contract is involved or a destination contract. Over the past several years, UCC terms have become less frequently used as many sellers, buyers, and common carriers have chosen to incorporate into their contracts the more readable and comprehensive set of INCO terms developed by the International Chamber of Commerce. Now moving to risk of loss. 
the time at which the risk of loss transfers from the seller to the buyer is dependent upon the type of contract involved. The shifting of the risk of loss is very important and determines who bears the risk of loss for damaging the goods in transit. Whoever bears that risk is the person who should pay for insurance against such risk of loss. There is an important exception in UCC Section 2-510. If the goods or the tender do not conform to the contract, then the risk remains on the seller. This makes sense because the buyer has the right to reject the goods in that situation. And bailment contracts. Section 2-5092 deals with the less common bailment situation in which the goods are held by a third-party bailee to be delivered without being moved. A good example of this is a transaction involving agricultural commodities. The farmer delivers his crop to a grain silo, receiving a document of title to the grain. When the farmer sells the grain to a buyer, he transfers to the buyer the document of title, allowing the buyer to obtain the grain from the silo. According to Section 2-509-2A, at that point, the risk of loss of the goods passes to the buyer. And choice of law. In the absence of the party's agreement, the general rule is that the law of the place of delivery governs contracts for the sale of goods. Under a shipment contract, the place of delivery will be the seller's place of business. For example, if a company in Washington orders equipment to be shipped from a company in Wisconsin, then the place of delivery under this shipment contract will be Wisconsin, and absent an agreement otherwise, Wisconsin law will govern. Now moving to title and passage of title. When does title to the goods pass from the seller to the buyer? Under real property law, there is a unitary concept under which an entire bundle of rights passes at the same time. For example, title and risk of loss and possessory rights all transfer at a single moment in time when the deed is delivered from the seller to the buyer. In a departure from real property law, when it comes to goods, different rights can pass at different times. For example, risk of loss can pass from buyer to seller before the buyer acquires title or possession of the goods. UCC Section 2-401-1 provides that, quote, any retention or reservation by the seller of the title in goods shipped or delivered to the buyer is limited in effect to a reservation of a security interest. You will see the significance of this concept when you study UCC Article 9. For example, I sell you my titled automobile on credit, and we provide in our agreement that I will withhold title until you have paid in full. In fact, I have sold the car to you. Recall that Section 2-106-1 provides that a sale, quote, consists in the passing of title from the seller to the buyer for a price, end quote. 
Therefore, you have title to the car, even though you do not have the title document. And I have a security interest in the car. That is the right to repossess it if you default in payments. So first look for an agreement of the parties as to when title passes. For example, purchase orders often contain a clause indicating when title to the goods passes from seller to buyer. In addition, consider terms that may be added by usage of trade, course of dealing, and course of performance. Under Section 2-401-1, title cannot pass before identification of the goods has occurred. Absent a specific agreement otherwise, Section 2-401-2 provides the default rules. For a shipment contract, title passes at the time and place of shipment. For a destination contract, title passes upon tender of the goods to the buyer when the goods are tendered at the stated destination. For contracts not involving common carriers, title passes when the seller has performed his obligation to deliver as determined by the contract. Note that under Section 2-401-4, if a buyer rejects non-conforming goods or otherwise refuses the goods, whether justified or unjustified, title revests in the seller. Now moving to transferor's title. Section 2-403 provides that a purchaser of goods acquires all of the title of transferor unless by agreement the purchaser acquires less than the whole, such as an undivided one-half interest or a leasehold interest. The term purchaser, as used here, includes donees. In other words, the transferee receives whatever title the transferor has. If the transferor has good title, the transferee will acquire good title. Similarly, if the transferor has something other than good title. The general rule of Section 2-403 is that the transferee inherits the transferor's title problems. Unless specifically and validly disclaimed, the seller, whether a merchant or non-merchant, warrants that the title conveyed is good, the transfer is rightful, and the goods are delivered free from any security interest or other lien, except for those security interests or liens known by the buyer at the time of contracting. Thus, the purchaser always has a breach of warranty claim against the seller if it turns out that the seller breaches this warranty. For example, if a seller sells a stolen watch to a buyer, the buyer can recover from the seller. But what if the seller has disappeared? What are the rights of the purchaser of the watch, who paid good money for a stolen watch? Section 2-403 addresses the rights of a purchaser versus the rights of third parties who claim a right to the purchased goods. There are three types of title which we will study. Good title, voidable title, and void title. Good title. The concept of good title, not a defined term, has developed in the real property context. 
It has been defined as a title, quote, free from litigation, palpable defects, and grave doubts, comprising both legal and equitable titles, and fairly deducible of record, end quote. Good title is a title free from all liens, encumbrances, and claims of third parties. It vests full rights of ownership in the owner, unless the transferee acquires a partial interest, such as an undivided one-half interest. And voidable title. The second sentence of Section 2-403 addresses the concept of voidable title and lists a non-exclusive list of situations giving rise to voidable title. When a person with voidable title transfers to a good-faith purchaser for value, the transferor's voidable title becomes good title in the hands of the purchaser. If a transferee of property acquires voidable title, the transferor has a right to recover the goods from the transferee. For example, if a purchaser buys a new car and the check bounces, the purchaser has acquired voidable title. And as against the purchaser, the seller has superior rights. But once the transferee, in turn, transfers the goods to a good-faith purchaser for value, the new transferee acquires good title, and the original transferor's right to recover the goods is cut off. UCC Section 2-403-1A through D includes a list of situations where a transferee of goods acquires voidable title. A. The transferor was deceived as to the identity of the purchaser. B. The goods were delivered in exchange for a check which later is dishonored. C. It was agreed that the transaction was to be a cash sale. D. The delivery was procured through fraud punishable as larcenous under the criminal law, such as theft by trickery, where the transferor voluntarily relinquishes goods but has been tricked versus theft where goods are taken without participation by the transferor. Note that this list is non-exclusive. Other instances where a transferee acquires voidable title include purchase from a minor or a person later claiming mental incompetence. And void title. In contrast to voidable title, which can change into good title when the goods have subsequently been transferred to a good-faith purchaser for value, void title is always void. Where title is void, the rightful owner will prevail against someone who's acquired the goods down the line, even if the current owner was a good-faith purchaser for value. Recall, for example, that contracts entered into by a person whose mental capacity has been judicially determined are void. Note, however, that the statute of limitations might bar the rightful owner's claim against the purchaser. An example is the defense mounted by museums against the claimants of artworks that were stolen during World War II. Now moving to good faith purchaser for value. Read UCC section 2-403. 
If a person acquires voidable title, for example, by use of trickery against the rightful owner, and that person then transfers the goods to a good faith purchaser for value, the good faith purchaser for value acquires good title and cuts off the original owner's rights to the goods. Good faith is defined at section 1-201b20 as, quote, honesty in fact and the observance of reasonable commercial standards of fair dealing, end quote. Purchaser is defined at section 1-201b30 as a person who takes by purchase, which is defined at section 1-201b29 to include taking by sale, lease, discount, negotiation, mortgage, pledge, lien, security interest, issue, gift, or any other voluntary transaction creating an interest in property. And value is defined at section 1-204 to include, quote, any consideration sufficient to support a simple contract, end quote. Now moving to entrustment. What if you take your skis to the ski shop for waxing and an inexperienced employee sells the skis to a customer in the store who wants to buy a good pair of used skis? Does the purchaser acquire good title? This situation is governed by UCC section 2-403-2 when goods are entrusted to a merchant who deals in goods of that kind. The merchant has the power to transfer all rights of the owner to a buyer in the ordinary course of business. Notice that this only applies when you have entrusted goods to a merchant who deals in goods of that kind. So if I take my skis to a friend to be waxed, the friend, not being a merchant of skis, has no power to transfer title to my skis. And the purchaser must be a buyer in the ordinary course of business, which is defined at section 1-201B9 as a, quote, person that buys goods in good faith without knowledge that the sale violates the rights of another person in the goods and in the ordinary course from a person other than a pawnbroker in the business of selling goods of that kind, end quote. In other words, the goods have to look like the regular inventory of the seller. Notice the exclusion of purchases from pawnbrokers. You cannot qualify as a buyer in the ordinary course of business when buying at a pawn shop, presumably because everyone knows that thieves often try to sell stolen goods through pawn shops. The statute says that the entruster has the power to transfer title, not the right to transfer title. Therefore, the person who left his or her skis at the ski shop has a claim against the ski shop itself, but not against the person who bought the skis in the ordinary course of business from the ski shop. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.